Hey everybody, it's Mark Thompson, and this is the Chief Executive Podcast. I have the privilege of working with extraordinary leaders who are finding their dream and their impact on the world by becoming a chief executive or a leader of an organization. And one of those people who inspires me the most, who has become a, a dear mentor and friend, is Aisha Evans. Growing up in Senegal and Paris, Evans idolized Marie Curie and dreamed of becoming a technologist, one who makes an extraordinary impact on the world. Well, in 2019, after more than a decade working for Intel, she got that chance. She was tapped to become CEO of an autonomous mobility company called Zooks. Less than a year later, she orchestrated the $1.2 billion sale to Jeff Bezos at Amazon but held on to her C-suite spot and has been leading the charge in transforming the way we work and drive and show up in the world with mobility. Here's Aisha Evans. Aisha, I wanted to start with one of the great adventures you've just had. What is very fresh now, you have throughout your life, uh, been an innovator from the from the moment uh, you were born. I think you were an innovator. You you're going to have to share a story in a moment from your time at Senegal when you actually hacked your dad's phone uh, so that you could continue to make calls. Um, I can't wait to be a writer in a Zooks vehicle. <laughs> Aisha, could you maybe just start off with what you did? It's just been 30 days. Um, you uh, you were able to sign up Jeff Bezos. Uh, for to be your great partner uh, at Amazon um, and uh, to, to lead, in a sense, a revolution in safety and, and self-driving vehicles. Could you talk a little bit about that? And then we'll, we'll kick this off. Uh, first of all, good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, so many friends. Good to see you all. Um, yeah, um, I, um, a couple of years ago, decided to leave uh, sort of the, the normal corporate world, left Intel. Uh, to go um, help lead a company and lead and serve a company called Zooks. And our basic uh, uh, philosophy is that uh, the model of uh, individually owned uh, cars, uh, especially in dense urban environment, that model, that model is breaking down. It's not sustainable from a safety standpoint. I mean, uh, just in the US, 40,000 uh, fatalities a year. It's not sustainable from uh, the environment. Uh, I think we especially in five days, we won't be arguing about that anymore, or four days. And then uh, also like 30% of uh, the, uh, the pollution is generated by uh, individually owned car. We spend collectively 400 billion hours driving ourselves. Imagine if we could do something else with that time. And then by the way, it's just inefficient. I mean, when uh, you own a car, 4% uh, of the time it's being used and 96% of the time it's uh, depreciating, sitting and also uh, using space because you have to park it somewhere. So when you set our cities over the next few years and how many more people will be in cities, I don't know about you, not, I'm not in the mood to uh, redesign them to fully and totally. And so uh, we've created this uh, robo taxi which is uh, essentially almost like a, a moving uh, living room. It's not a concept car, as you saw, it drives. Uh, we really thought about the rider, not about the driver, but we use um, autonomous driving technology uh, for it to come, pick you up, drop you off, and, uh, and then go pick up the next passenger. It's electric and constantly moving 
picking up and dropping off. The other thing that's really uh, important is that we get a lot of time, uh, the question, why don't you just take a regular car and make it autonomous? Because a regular car was architected for a driver. When we went from horse and carriage to human driver and the uh, uh, combustion engine, we redesigned the car for the human. So if you start thinking about your cars today, in terms of you, the human driver, you can see a windshield, mirrors, steering wheel, even the seating arrangement, right? The passengers are mostly sitting in the back so they don't distract you. And so mm. our view and our hypothesis is that if AI is going to drive and uh, reinvent really transportation, personal transportation to make it safer, cleaner, and more enjoyable for everyone, you have to redesign and re-architect the vehicle to make it easiest and safest for AI to drive. And that's the result. And now we're in testing on private and public road. We have to meet a very high safety bar. This is non-negotiable because we drive amongst human and that's what we're doing. And then we hope to be picking up people uh, very soon. It's amazing uh, to see this transformation going on that you're leading. And you were recruited to the company as a first-time CEO after being a technologist in, in many places around the world prior to this gig. Uh, and the technology was kind of underway for five years. Uh, in a sense, a, a founder departed the company. One of the themes that I find myself talking with CEOs all the time about is what was it like to be a first-time CEO? Uh, what were the skills you felt like you brought? Uh, and what do you wish you knew when, when you stepped into this role? Because it's just been about a year, right? Yeah, a couple of years now. So look, I mean, uh, I knew that uh, I, I knew how to take a uh, um, so a product that has hardware and software integrated and help take it to market and to scale and sort of come out of the prototyping sort of garage operation startup to starting to set up a machine. I mean, this is a, you know, <laughs> 2,500 kilogram machine that is running around with no human controls, right? So it's got to yeah. do the right thing. And so I knew I had those skills. I knew I had the leadership skills. I mean, Lord knows by this time between Marshall, you and everybody else in uh, MG100, if my leadership skills are not improving, we have a problem. And <laughs> I knew also that I, uh, I could partner with a founder. Founders are a different breed. Uh, shall we say, especially in the Valley. And so those are the things that I knew. Uh, I also knew I was ready for an mm. advantage, something different, for something that if it worked out, great. If it didn't work out, I was still going to learn something and sort of make progress on my, my own personal journey. So those are the things that I knew. What I didn't know is that all of the things that I complained about at Intel and that I was a rebel against, I now needed to put them in place at this company. <laughs> I was always at Intel going, there's too much process, finance and legal have too much power. What is this? Why do we have so many meetings? What do you mean I have to talk to somebody to convince them? Well, it turns out that that's exactly what I had to come put in place. You have to build a company. Mm. Uh, a lot of, especially in Silicon Valley, there are a lot of great technology places and teams, but building a company and building something that's sustainable and that really right. grows is key. And so that's what I didn't know. <laughs> Mm. Well, you couldn't have, I guess, imagined when you were growing up in Senegal and uh, hacking your dad's phone. Could you tell us that story about what was really showing a little bit of evidence that you might go on to become a technologist um, and whatever lessons that you might have gathered there that bring your incredible sense of humanity and caring and compassion to both technology and, frankly, Silicon Valley, uh, where it's so desperately needed, perhaps more, more now uh, than ever? 
sure. Uh, so uh, very um, succinctly, I grew up between Senegal and France. My dad was a telecommunication executive in France. And so that's why I went to school. But literally every vacation, I went back to Senegal. And I've, I've, I was bouncing between the two worlds. And I could already see the difference of when you have technology, what it does for people and society, because I was seeing it you know, every other vacation. And then, mm. uh, back then we had landlines. Uh, I basically, when I was in Senegal, I wanted to be uh, in touch with my friends in Paris. And when I was in Paris, uh, the reverse. And so uh, we had, very, back then it was rotary phones. I'm dating myself. And um, <laughs> my dad got tired of the phone bills. Uh, remember, it used to be very expensive to call people. And so he put a little lock, like a physical lock so that you couldn't move the rotary thing to make a phone call. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. How am I going to solve this? And then I noticed the two little clicks that sit right under the handset. And I was like, oh, okay, this is just bits basically and beeps. And so I would take the phone number of my friends, whether I was in Senegal or whether I was in, um, in France, and I would turn it into clicks and beeps. And I would just use my finger on top of the little white things and dial the phone number. Of course, my dad is like, I don't understand. Like, why are we still getting these phone bills? First of all, he could afford them. And second of all, I was like, eh, I don't know. But that was sort of my first like, huh, technology leads to knowledge, leads to better, better serving people, serving society. And, and you can, you can, you don't have to just be a geek. You can be a geek in per with a purpose and in service of. Mm, you've been a great mentor and coach to others. You're the coaching leader, uh, a person who sees herself as, as one who can really light up and, and find the spark uh, in people. What, what's your view about coaching uh, and, and that role for the chief executive? Well, I think that um, uh, one of the most important thing is um, the area, the, the, the era of command and control and you being the smartest people is actually over. Mm. Uh, really about, uh, and, and thank you to you, Marshall, Alan, so many of you on, uh, on this call for helping me on that journey. You, you get to where you are very often by being the best at the trade. So for me, I was an engineer, I was a chip designer, I was in wireless technology, remember the telephone? And so that's how I got there. And there's a certain element of unconscious competition of I'm going to be the best in this room and I'm going to do and I'm going to show and what have you. And being a woman and also a woman of color, I'm sure that also played a role. I'm going to show you. Well, then you get in this role and it's like, I will never forget Marshall's like, all right, so now. We're trying to make the team better or we're trying to make you better? Like, because uh, you alone can't do much. And that transition from in service of the team and enabling the team and understanding that the collective output is actually your job as opposed mm. to your individual output and being comfortable around that and being happy about that and knowing like to hush, let the team do, uh, ask questions instead of telling, uh, mm. By the way, when they make a mistake, don't freak out because who wants to work for somebody who freaks out when there's a mistake? And that transition was a, a very difficult one, but one that really I'm happy I went through. And it's uh, back to Faze's point earlier. You think that all of this benefits you at work and it ends up benefiting you at home too. Because as my daughter says, you're not, this is not Intel, this is not Zooks, you're not the boss of this family. Well, what, what is going on here? And so that's been the biggest transition for me. 
Well, uh, Aisha, you're uh, such a great mentor to the people that you touch, all of us, including neighbors like me uh, and friends uh, and family members. So, so thank you for making it personal uh, the way you touch. I think leadership is more personal than ever. So I'm so grateful to you. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson. And please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.